philosophers in space, 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 space. They waste all their choices on the way to us. They want to own the light. Living in fear of being torn limb from limb by the Minotaur may seem harsh to some people now, but you have to remember what it was like after 9 11. That's, That's right. What are you wearing mask? Were you burn the acid or something like that? Oh no, it's just they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? Hello and welcome to Philosophers in Space. This is episode 161, uh, and I would say who's here, except it's it's indeterminable. You can't calculate because there's three of us, so there's no <laughs> way to do it. How's it going, Aaron? I'm great. I have body number two over here. I'm feeling pretty solid. Oh, yeah. At first, I see where you are. It looks like it makes... Oh, you're out of, uh, you're out of orbit. I can't uh, count for it anymore. No way to know. It's impossible. <laughs> Maybe you could come up with a series of bone rolling techniques by which you could ascertain when, when I will be coming back around and I can get another comment. I'm in. always down for a good bone rolling. Anytime. <laughs> well, we have brought on our own very special guru to help us, our, our leader of our uh, anti-American establishmentarian uh, system, <laughs> our, our friend of the show, Matt Smith, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Matt Smith, no, Matt, Matt, Smith. Matt Brown of the Guru Podcast, good friends, and and was excited because you know he's also big into the sci-fi and is going to join us. So Matt, yeah, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, big sci-fi geek here. So yeah, I like listening to your podcast, and uh, yeah, it's great to be on to talk about a book. But you gave me a, this is a, a hard one to start off with. Yeah, yes, yeah, we definitely a book. put all the work on you here. That's the. I this was I'll mm -hmm. give this book a lot of credit. At no point did I have any clue what was going to happen. Like it just was the mm -hmm. most counterintuitive way of telling a story or something. I don't. It was really interesting. I, I found it very fascinating. Oh, of mm -hmm. course, we're talking about the three body problem. I don't. In case we, <laughs> in case people didn't know, I don't think we explicitly stated it. I, I mean, yeah, it's you know, we were trying to orbit in a way that would suggest it, but I guess this is an audio medium, so it didn't mm -hmm. work. Right. Yeah, super like the narrative itself, yeah. things come around super weird ways. So yeah, yeah, like it's it's a different book from pretty much any other yeah. sci-fi I've ever read. Um, but just a hard one. I wish you'd started me off on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> I could have done well. <laughs> no, no, we we manage the low hanging fruit on our own, and then only bring in guests when we need somebody to solve <laughs> yeah. the hard problems for us. Yeah, that's how Aaron got me going on the show. Is step one, I had to read a two paragraph like story written by a child that's like, "There's a robot," and that's it. Beep beep boop. I'm like, okay, that's my getting started with sci-fi. Okay, got it. Uh -huh. Robots. And then we got went from and there. And then Dune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> episode two dune <laughs> sorry episode two through seven dune that's how, yeah. that's how the, the show went by my by my memory so uh, um you didn't start off as a huge sci-fi fan like aaron twisted your arm um what, oh, what was the deal I, well there? i wouldn't say i wasn't a fan i just didn't i pro i just hadn't read as widely you know and i i just tend mm. to closer to normieville maybe yeah pretty yeah. much i'd say nor someone who enjoys a good sci-fi enjoys a good sci-fi movie you know show but i hadn't read a lot of sci-fi books you know but not not because mm. i didn't like i just i only honestly read like non-fiction for the longest time and then i started mm -hmm. actually reading fiction it's been fun i've i've uh especially books like this which i never would have 
known about. Like it, it was just so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, part of the reason to get mad on is not just that I, I wanted to shift all of the responsibility for this very hard book onto someone else, but he is one of the few genuine scientists that I know, even though he's a social scientist, I think we can still qualify <laughs> him as a scientist. Um, and there's a lot of good sciencey stuff in here that I, we needed his help on. So I'm glad to have him along for that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah keep, it was good. I might want to find a physicist uh, for this one. <laughs> Yeah, def definitely the wrong kind of scientist. Yeah. But, um. Give me the survey data on three Look, body all problems. scientists are yeah. the same. It's really, it's, it's, you know, whatever. What do the polls say about... <laughs> mean, mean. We are real science. We definitely. are real. Well, uh, real scientists... Y'all could build a super collider and, and a tiny little particle blade thingy. I'm sure you two could if you wanted to. We, we could, Aaron. We just don't want to. Yeah. No, it's much more we important could. to study nuances of human behavior. I understand. Yeah. Why don't yeah. we take advantage of our guest uh, in every sense of the term <laughs> by, <laughs> by stepping into the exposition zone here and uh, bopping it. Bop it! You're traveling through another dimension beyond that which is known to podcasters. It is the middle ground between fair use and copyright infringement, between ordinary fanboying and meaningful analysis. It is the exposition zone. Okay. So, do your best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll get started and help me out when I uh, trail off. So, <laughs> good luck. Right. <laughs> so, it starts off... In China, um, it's a it's a book by a Chinese author, of course, and uh, set in China. And uh, the first character we meet is Ye Wenji, who is a has this background in astrophysics, and it's it starts off way back in the nineteen sixties uh, during the Cultural Revolution, mm -hmm. which um, was a pretty turbulent time in China. Intellectuals and you know anybody with sort of Western or bourgeois kind of associations were in a fair bit of trouble. So so, her, so she comes from this sort of bourgeois family. Her father's an astrophysicist or physicist as well. He is uh, lynched um, during one of the uh, infamous uh, sort of um, ideological struggle sessions that the Red Guards were doing at the time and is, is quite traumatized by that incident. So she survives the the whole chaos and, and everything that was going on, but uh, is uh, forced to join um, one of these youth labor brigades and um, sent off to the countryside in, I think it's northwestern China. Mm. So I, again, this is all you're doing. You're doing all... great. You don't need that much. Level, I know because you know. you're going into so much detail on a part that doesn't matter at all. Like I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Which is like you could say that about each individual part of the, this the, this book in some ways like each they're not mm, it's a lot of mm -hmm. stuff that's not exactly besides connected. the game right like yeah, if the game is well, important and then everything else like it what is, is, is a little weird is the game even important like in the broad oh, sense fair enough. you're right you're not like, wrong that's what was so weird about this book is like the la the mm -hmm. third act or like the fifth i don't even know is like a curveball that basically it's like um michael scott doing improv uh where he mm -hmm. just pulls out the gun every time it felt like well, anyway, we'll get to it. But yeah, no, like uh -huh. yeah. this is a series of unconnected things, kind of. I mean, they are connected, but also weirdly, like all this detail about, you know, the, yeah. the Chinese revolution and all that, like it doesn't really matter, does it? 
the stuff that I liked in there, and, and Matt can talk a little bit more about this, is the the interesting sudden connection to Silent Spring, which is an early um, environmentalist text. And I think sort of mm. I want to talk some today about kind of the conflicts between environmentalism and communism here. Yeah, yeah. So she's given um, this this book, Silent Spring, by a journalist who, and you know, this is one of these prescribed suspicious Western texts. And uh, she, at the time, her construction brigade is, is out there furiously um, clearing forests and things like that. And uh, as you hinted at, Aaron, they weren't exactly known for great environmental sensitivity. Um, so it has this, so she's really quite, I mean, so she's traumatized in heaps of ways and actually mm-hmm. and probably the clearing, you know, all of this environmental devastation that, um, they're contributing to is sort of contributing to that in a way. And and there's a good scene actually where she's kind of looking at a tree that's been that's been cut down and it's and it describes the um the wounds or you know just to this tree, you mm-hmm. know, or you know being cut up and stuff like that, you know, to the trunk ready to be taken away. And um yeah, it's almost like that's sort of revisiting some of the other sorts of yeah, mm-hmm. you know, mm. um, traumatic stuff. So okay, so where to next? So she, <laughs> so she's betrayed by this journalist because um, the you know he he writes kind of a pro environmental report um, to the and, and submits it up the ladder, um, and you know it's a very uncertain time ideologically. Like it's very hard to tell what kind of opinions would get you in a huge amount of trouble and what might get you promoted, right? So mm-hmm. um, this guy has a go at that and finds out that no, no, that was a really bad idea <laughs> and he was going to be in big trouble. So he blames um, Ye Wenji for writing this thing. Um, she's already uh, very suspect because of her family background and uh, she's imprisoned. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Shall I keep going? Yeah, yeah, of course. And then she, yeah, I mean, jump, we can jump ahead to write. She gets That's saved, obviously. That's what I think every time on this show. Should I keep going? Do, do I... <laughs> You know, th- here's the thing. This is a book that I think a lot of people are going to struggle to get through. And so I do think this is a good episode for where the, you know, the um, exposition zone is helpful for people to get like a sense of the key yeah. beats. And I, I do think these are important beats because they make clear what's going to drive her key character choice later in the story. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we're about halfway through, actually, of the first half, anyway. So, mm. so she, mm-hmm. um, um, she is picked up out of detention um, from by some sort of physics people that I think knew her father or something, and is um, given the opportunity to join this remote installation called Red Coast, which coincidentally happens to be just where they were working before in the labor group. And this is this um, super secret or, uh, um, you know, government uh, facility that is at first purportedly, what's it, I forget because she's given like three, but before she eventually learns the truth mm-hmm. about what it does, she's given a couple of other explanations. Like, what was the first they one? They just have right? all sorts of cover stories about yeah. like counter research and, like, and satellites yeah, Stranger and things that like yeah. sort of ask thing where it's like the science station that yeah think everybody mm. thinks is a different thing than it is right yeah and i think and so it kind of turns out to be a facility for looking for extraterrestrial communications seti basically i mm-hmm. guess yeah which mm-hmm. is funny because no you don't really need to keep seti secret 
<laughs> yeah. I, unless you want to be the first one to have a conversation with them or something, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah. That in this universe, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like every I, it seems like the political situation is they're worried about what happens if aliens ever communicate with someone other than that. And and kind of the whole world is that way. Like each culture is like, ah, oh, we better be the ones that communicate with aliens. And I wonder how much that's a real thing. I don't even know. Like if that was a, mm-hmm. I know the Cold War era was pretty weird. Were people worried yeah. about that? Yeah, uh, research watching Stargate Atlantis and such, I'm, I'm pretty confident <laughs> that yeah, there's a huge strategic advantage that comes to being the first one to have that conversation. Sure. Yeah. Look how yeah. it went in Men I mean, in Black, right? Yeah, like, because it is so, like, culturally alien to Westerners like us, it's very hard to tell when those surreal aspects are yes. like that because they're, cause they're meant to be surreal. Is that part, I'm or glad is, you said that. Mm-hmm. I, was, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how much of this is fictionalized and how much isn't because I'm ignorant. I don't know. Well, yeah, and it's also tricky when you're when we're trying to deal with a lot of nonlinear storytelling yes. and stuff, and it's hard to know like how much of this is like beats and tropes that are just falling a little flat because of that cultural difference versus this is just like a really you know untraditionally written by any yeah. standards sort of science fiction novel, um, maybe a little bit to a fault potentially. We should note that, like, this story we're telling about this character is not told in this order necessarily. Like, some bits are told and then right. skips around. And so we're already, you know, there's pretty a whole second far... plot line in the future that we haven't gotten into yet. Yeah. And, and yeah. we're pretty far in this plot line. Like, the stuff we're discovering here takes place mm-hmm. way later in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. We should, we should flip forward in the exposition mm-hmm. to the present day. And mm-hmm. there's this other um main character whose name is wang miao who um so he's he's the protagonist i guess and he is um sort of drawn into this government investigation into the mysterious deaths of of scientists Mm. um and um you know lots of sort of strange and suspicious suspicious behavior which seems to be related to um, trying to, uh, what's the word, like some sort of black ops operation they think it might be to kind of disrupt um, technological development. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I just want to jump in there. I would, and it's maybe some minor point, but like I think Yi is the protagonist in this story. She's she's the one whose actions drive the story. And I, I would say Yang is more of like a, a um, innocent observer kind of character, right? It's the neutral observer yeah. who like gets brought into everything and can be the person that <laughs> is learning about all the conspiracies and stuff. That's that's very true. He doesn't advance the story at all. He's just kind he's of very little agency <laughs> at all. Yeah, he's almost yeah. like the audience kind of like discovering. Yeah, he's what's very much. Yeah, right. He's for, he's he's the the it's mold like that the audience can slide yeah. into. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, so apparently scientists have been committing suicide for mysterious reasons and um, there's this um, strange um, association of scientists that seems to have some knowledge of this. And there's also a pretty, a pretty cool character, um, Shi Kuan, um, who is a detective. And, yeah, he's, he's a pretty oh, cool yeah. character. What did you guys think of him? Yeah, I like that it's like in in your book, which has a lot, you know, <laughs> I guess it doesn't have everything, but in your book that has a lot of different things, it was cool too to be like, also, you know, a buddy cop uh, show, you know, whatever, like a, <laughs> like a cool yeah. cop show just mixed in there. Like, why not? It's kind of, it's kind of fun. But a very specific Hong Kong 
kind of um buddy cop trope yeah. for me like the kind of the uh you know grizzled and and you know like irritating to everybody but still manages it like you know sounds it's like it's every standard. cop movie <laughs> I, I know but like there's a chow young fat version of it to me that is particularly iconic okay. in a sense you know what i mean like that kind yeah. of um yeah. anyway yeah yeah no I, I had a couple of south korean cop characters movie cop characters in mind <laughs> envisioning <laughs> him um yeah so anyway so he through sort of poking around and he and he's got his own research this guy um wang hit and um in nanotechnology and he has this really weird experience where um he starts seeing like actual like the de- like like a countdown um first of all um it just appears in photographs that he's taken with yeah. his camera and then it actually is like superimposed on his vision so it's actually right you know these these numbers um or letters um um right there on his eyeball so um mm-hmm. the, and so that freaks him out obviously he figures out that it's got there's no physical physically plausible way that it could have been someone could have interfered with his camera or the development process or anything. And yeah, it's, so- I think we should talk about this for a sec. Maybe uh, it's I think it's cool because it's like, you know, in a lot of the atheism stuff that we've talked about, there's always a question of like, mm. what would a real miracle look like? You know, and how would you know you're not just hallucinating? And like, it's interesting because this was a cool bit of that where it's like in his camera, like he's just taking pictures. And I think. He's taking pictures with an old camera. It's not he uses a digital different camera. kinds of cameras. He has different people take. Yeah, you know, he happened to be pictures taking pictures with an mm-hmm. old camera, and he like actually developed them like old timey kind of thing, and like tries all these different cameras, like you say. And he also tries like if he takes a picture and develops it, it's there. If his wife, I think, or whatever, yeah, yep. I think he has his wife take a picture. She takes a yep. picture. The countdown's not there. Like stuff that's like, oh, okay, this mm-hmm. is undeniably like something. You know, I mean, I guess it's. I guess you can't say it's a miracle but like something miraculous or something that's so extremely weird yeah that we could never possibly understand it <laughs> or at least he right. could possibly understand it is happening it's, it was kind of cool to yeah. to see that unfold unfold in the book yeah i think that was one of my favorite developments in the in this first part because mm-hmm. and it and it, it it escalates right because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's already weird enough but um he gets this um you know he gets this hint to say well um just just stop your research program for the moment mm-hmm. just 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 stop it so um it has to do to, they have to do repairs or something anyway so he holds it for 3 days and the the countdown goes away right and when he takes pictures it doesn't happen anymore so but when the research program starts up again then it's back so mm-hmm. the so that's weird and then the other thing is that he he gets advised to check out this observatory, which is monitoring the cosmic background radiation. Of course, mm-hmm. this, you know the leftover embers from from the Big Bang, and this is obviously a phenomenon that affects the entire universe, literally. And he he's told to watch it at a particular time when his when his research right. um, facility powers up again, right? And so he does. He he gets them to to to, to let him monitor it. That the average microwave background is just apparently like a flat line, and maybe you know showing this infinitesimal kind of decrease over thousands of years or whatever. But as soon mm-hmm. as his research program fires up again, it it starts um, oscillating, and um, in Morse code essentially. So the and the Morse code is spelling out this countdown. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gets even worse, right? Because they have like special glasses in this universe where you can see the background radiation, which is to me another kind of Philip K. Dickey, like low sci-fi. I don't know if they actually have those glasses or not, but like he gets these special glasses where he can actually just look at the radiation himself and it like the sky is like flashing in this way. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's the very it gets very that's the Philip K. Dick. That's what it that's when it hit me, I think. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's um is it Vetus or um virus um yeah with weird things yeah. like that are happening so um so, so there's just no plausible way that this could be happening through any known um technological interference you know you could interfere with the with the you know signals coming down from the satellites or the or the data sets or something like that but there's there's no way that it could have interfered with those glasses that um that, that he was wearing or or indeed be superimposed on his vision um, or even his his old analog camera so mm-hmm. um yeah that kind of that that kind of brought me up to like halfway through the um first story so the other main theme that's going on is this game which apparently intellectuals and scientists are playing and it's a very strange game called three body and you you wear these haptic suits that and virtual reality helmets so that gives you this fully immersive experience but you know it's a very strange game it's not it's not it's not recognizable as a computer game you you you're on this planet and there are um the it's like this civilization type building game where people are trying to build a civilization on this planet but this planet is plagued by stable and chaotic eras so in the stable eras you have a sun um, you know a night and day and it's reasonably temperate but in the chaotic eras um, the the heat from the sun is totally um, unpredictable and you sometimes have no sun at all and it's freezing cold and at other times the sun's like huge or there could even be multiple suns at the same time just doing weird stuff in the sky moving in unpredictable directions and the strange inhabitants of this game the the sort of proletariat sort of characters who are npcs <laughs> i suppose are uh have the ability to sort of um dehydrate themselves and go into kind of suspended animation in order to survive the um chaotic eras so the idea is i guess is that the the civilization kind of advances during the stable eras. Um, the challenge of the game is, is for them to, and, and civilization can get kind of wrecked by the chaotic eras, um, which, which can be very um, catastrophic with, you know, the, the air burning or the air or the atmosphere actually freezing. Um, so the challenge seems to be to kind of understand what's going on with the um, astronomy and sort of progress the civilization so he plays this the the guy wang plays this game several times and experiences or is a witness to um some progress in this game Mm -hmm. um yeah i think it'd probably be right to say this game is basically a walking simulator right and to use the modern uh you know like the, char- the main character doesn't do much or the character doesn't do a lot over the course of the game so much as like watch a series of events kind of unfold and kind of piece together what's happening. And we'll we'll get into yeah, the game more. And that part was confusing two. to me because he also seemed to build a reputation within the game, didn't he? 
But I like was kind of confused there, as to like yeah, how weird. he earned that later on. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he was but, kind of at least recognized by other yeah. Players. And I was like, I thought he pretty much didn't do anything, so that was confusing. But we could we could get to he that like, later. He like builds a reputation merely by noticing that it's a three body problem. I think was the one uh, like the first part where he like gets attention is where he's like, I figured out what's going on here. Um, it's a three body problem kind of thing. But like that's that's literally the only action you could say that he substantively takes. Over the yeah. course of everything, everything else is watching. And so pretty interesting developments happen. And this is where, this is another way in which the book is very stylized and not naturalistic because, mm-hmm. um, as you say, it's kind of unclear who are the actual human players in this game. Um, and they act in a very sort of stereotypical way, like they'll be playing the role of some ancient emperor or Aristotle or or somebody and it's mm-hmm. it's all a bit odd but it, it does communicate the idea that they're at the first stages of the game they are sort of using mystical and magical methods to try to understand the mystery of the stable and the chaotic eras so mm-hmm. um and then which, which don't work very well you know there's confident predictions made about um when you know, because what they really want to do is try to predict when the chaotic eras will happen and try to have some sort of forewarning and, and better be able to manage it. Now, so their methodologies kind of gradually improve. So it mm-hmm. starts off, as I said, with these um, traditional methods, and then it kind of progresses to um, astronomical um, and, you know, quasi-scientific theoretical mm-hmm. methods. Um, and... Then eventually, towards the end of the first half, they kind of figure out they need to do computational predictions of the three-body problem, which, as you hinted at, Aaron, they figure out that what's really going on here is you've got these three celestial bodies, these three suns, which are orbiting um, um, chaotically around each other. Um, mm-hmm. And this planet is, is is in the mix too. So I guess it's a four body problem. But anyway, um, I, I guess it's not. I guess <laughs> one of those bodies guess, doesn't really matter. Didn't really yeah, think about I, that. Yeah, is the sun? Uh, there are three suns, right? It's not like the planet. Yeah, there it? are there are three suns for sure. And yeah, there used to be all their planets. We 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 find out that eventually yeah. we find out that there were like uh, was a whole cluster of planets that have slowly been getting eaten by the suns. I can't believe yeah, I didn't think one. about that. It absolutely is a four body problem. You can't be like, well, <laughs> well let's just I figure can, out the suns I, <laughs> I mean i guess the mass is the mass low enough in a planet that you can yeah, ignore it ma- like it's got to be yes yeah right yeah yeah that's right. that's why it's a three-body problem because you can ignore the planet really because it's i it's, don't know i feel like you can't <laughs> i'm pretty like, sure I'm the you scientist, can't ignore i'm the scientist here <laughs> wouldn't that be so uh, funny bro- if you like you solved you- the game by being like guys it's not a three-body problem yeah. it's four <laughs> body. oh we were four body problems are easier. yeah four body problems solvable it's just those yeah. three body problems are the problem <laughs> right you know how yep. that is one body feels left out and like that isn't getting enough attention uh, sorry that, that's, that's an all- after dark joke i apologize I'll say yeah that. but yeah i won't i won't run with that one um so <laughs> more of a lying <laughs> down joke anyway <laughs> so um they to to implement these the computations required in order to predict the orbits of these um the celestial bodies um, rather than using a computer, they gather together all of these NPC proletariat army people. I think thirty oh, that's, million. That's like my favorite part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so there's this thing where it, they kind of demonstrate that, you know, three soldiers standing in a triangle can implement um, the, the basic elements of computation and or XOR, that kind of thing. And then they get um, by operate, but even though each one of them is a complete idiot, has no idea what's going on, if you get 30 million of them all standing together on the huge parade ground um, they, and organize them in like a computer architecture, so essentially every group of three is acting like a transistor, um, then it's it, they, they assemble this huge human computer that is able to run the computations and try to predict uh, what's going to happen next. Um, it turns out even that doesn't work. This is kind yeah. of as far as I got to. Um, that I don't yeah, know that's what a good happened, spot to leave it to, I yeah, think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we'll, um, you know, we'll talk a lot about why, what, what that order of events means and what they're doing in the three-body game stuff, I think, more in the second episode. Um, because that, I think that really is the coolest part of the book. And we want to have, like, all of it on the table, I think, before we fully unpack it. Um, but we should also mention that, like, the Trisolarans on the planet are a kind of authoritarian communist society, it seems like, that they... Are you um, talking about within the game? In, or? in the game, right? In the okay. game, right? The, the king has the power to, like, dehydrate people whenever he wants and rehydrate people whenever he wants. And, like, everyone is completely, like, subservient to the goal, it seems well, like, of yeah, trying but, to... But it also mm -hmm. does that kind of annoying thing, in my opinion, where the evolution of their society mirrors ours, you know? Like, mm. somehow their civilization evolves. Because they'll come back in the game and be like, oh, they're in the Bronze Age, or, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm like, that's Yeah, weird, yeah, it, and I definitely want to... Actually, I think there's something, like, going there, but I also agree yeah. that it's, it's interesting the way that he draws on multiple... Um, cultural traditions and which ones yeah. he particularly draws on and, and why i think is interesting yeah i mean they do refer to that huge human computer as being human wave tactics um mm -hmm. so they kind of make reference well the author makes reference to that sort of you know communist kind of um you know mm -hmm. overcome overcome the enemy with with a massed kind of you know with just with discipline and following orders and lots of dedication and courage you know that kind of thing right and and we'll i'm gonna i'll spoil i want i need to mention at least one thing from towards the end of the book which is there there's going to be a, obviously a connection to an actual species who is also it seems to be very communistic right and that like that um is going to be another layer to this conversation we need to have about what is this book saying about communism which i think is not <laughs> not actually as clear as it seems when you try like when you read the book it's not clear to me at all <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah. we better get to the philosophy where uh, we've we've gone a while yeah, let's on do the, it uh, exposition so why don't you go ahead and uh grok it why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. This is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. All right. So first, I want to talk a little bit about kind of just trying to understand the communist side of this stuff. I want to say for me personally, we've, we've done like we've done episodes on Red Scare and things and we talked about communism there some. And I, I feel as an American, poorly situated to have a good understanding of like Maoist 
China, right? Like I feel the information that I get is always filtered through somebody's lenses, whether those lenses are like American anti-communist rhetoric or potentially Chinese either pro or anti-communist rhetoric. Um, And I, I find it tricky to like, you know, even get a sense of what the author was going for with their criticisms and or not of the Maoists, because you certainly at the beginning of this book get this sense of like the, you know, the revolution is portrayed as being incredibly violent and destructive and like isolating and and alienating to the people involved. And then at the same time, I saw some folks, you know, talking about how you can read also, you could read it in a more positive light, though, in saying that the scientific research at the center of Yi's story continues during the revolution and is promoted during the revolution. And is that in a sense kind of, you know, a positive spin on the revolution in that way? Ooh, I don't mm-hmm. know about that. Well, yeah. even, but even the Communist Party itself um, from 1981 in China um, basically condemned the um um, cultural revolution and and sort of right. had, had this problem had this problem of separating um, Mao's actions in instigating that from his you know he- heroic and um, you know um, role and um, you know essentially a mystical figure um, in their history mm-hmm. so it was a bit of an issue for them but yeah look it, it has look I I think it's fair to say the general assessment um, from historians was that it um, it um, it wasn't a huge success. <laughs> it definitely comes across as largely negative in the book, for sure. And that's why I also wanted to mention the the, the Trisolaran side of things, because you get this impression towards the end that, like, um, it, it's somewhat critical of the people who are, like, very pro that civilization. And so, like, I think... And I also, I, as I was doing some research, I found that there was... Uh, some concern that was actually our, our government got involved with the upcoming Netflix um, TV show based on the books. And they were like concerned because the author of the book has said po- positive things about the current Chinese government, including basically saying that like the situation with Uyghurs is like generally good for them. It's like an uh, attempt to yikes. sort of improve their quality of life. Right. Okay. So it's. And, and again, like, it's tricky because... The author said this? The author said this, right? Oh, and of yeah. course, and of course, it's tricky because as someone who, who, like, probably has to deal with the Chinese government quite a lot, he probably is under a lot of pressure to, you know, be, to go along in various kinds of ways on issues like that. So I don't know yeah. how much of that is genuine versus kind of basic survival, but it does sort of color, I think, the reading, my, my reading of this material. Yeah, I I think one of the interesting things about this is a connection with the book, which is that the, you know, with the chaotic eras and the stable eras and that Mm -hmm. um, China uh, has this obviously very long history, which um, is often understood by themselves in terms of the the times of stability and Mm -hmm. and unification and and times of division and war and you know terrible things happening states period right yeah warring states period obviously the impact of colonialism and all the foreign powers getting in there as well um and Mm -hmm. the and you know most recently of course the the communist party unifying the country and bringing stability so i guess from that angle the more um state-sponsored view on the cultural revolution was that it was 
bad because it was destabilizing. I mean, mm-hmm. Mao's, Mao's explicit intention was to destabilize the situation in order to wrest back some power from the, the other sort of um, factions that were um, going in a less pure kind of direction. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably an interesting way to sort of make that connection. Yeah, and and that's a good, I think, lead into having a little bit of the discussion around the philosophy of Maoism. So I did some reading. I'm not anywhere remotely like an expert on this, but it was interesting to find the ways in which it connects to stuff that we've covered, like Confucianism. So, you know, the destabilizing aspect you mentioned there, one of the things that it was sort of destabilizing was the traditional sort of understandings and values that were heavily centered around the kind of Confucian philosophy that we talked about previously, which had already like faced serious challenges prior to the Cultural Revolution, right? And was like, you know, like looked maybe vulnerable, I think, potentially. And so that's why it probably becomes um, this kind of target. And then the other sort of key feature that was maybe, you could argue maybe it was a little bit in tension with that destabilizing was the Maoist inclination towards nationalism as a counter to the kind of colonial industrialism that you were mentioning, right? So, and this is this is one of those like tricky parts where we can all agree that the methods were not good in various ways, um, but it's difficult to be totally judgmental of the theoretical backings where they are, you know, correctly highlighting that the developed or the third world in a sense has been systemically marginalized and exploited for the sake of developing quote unquote countries or developed countries. Um, and that has produced a bunch of suffering and that like violent resistance to that may be the only way to, you know, get out of this kind of colonized position. Yeah, except of course the the violence was directed internally during the mm-hmm. Cultural Revolution, and but certainly the, um, you know, in terms of modern day China, they've um, certainly um, turned towards that uh, idea, like more towards an autocratic and very centralized and going for stability. So the the danger they see in the the Uyghurs or in Hong Kong or in the Tiananmen Square protests is is fundamentally that they are potentially destabilizing elements. So you know heterogeneity and 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 different ideas yeah. are you know are seen as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Isn't mm-hmm. it kind of weird how honestly racist a lot of this stuff is? But we don't, I don't know. I guess we don't. I guess we have our own problems. But it's it's inter- like, you know, Japan or whatever, for example. Like they they mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of really highly controlled, you know, racial, um, mm-hmm. you know, like hierarchy. Well, I was gonna say like they just don't let anybody in. They're kind of, like they're right, they're the incredibly system, restrictive. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and it's 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 interesting. You know, it's. Uh, in a word, you know, not uh, this is not I, uh, this avoids um, or or it's it's hard to find clear good guys and bad guys in any of this stuff. You know, like this is all very complex stuff. But that's one thing that I I don't know. It's like it's it's like there's not really any conversation about that that much that I ever hear. It's interesting that these mm-hmm. countries are just incredibly restrictive and uh, and and like view anything like Islam as like no, that's not acceptable. We're not gonna mm-hmm. you know they're putting people in camps to keep that. From happening, from you know, getting into their monoculture kind of thing, and it's it's incredible that that just goes on, and we're just like, yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll keep buying products from China and stuff, and doing doing business and all that. It doesn't seem to matter. I don't know. 
weird yeah i I would say just a lot another level of that kind of colonial exploitation in the sense that like as you say we as the buyers are willing to continue buying the resources from well i don't even know that that actually i don't know that we're the buyers now anymore it's more like oh yeah that china is the market that everybody wants access to so we can't say anything otherwise Mm. they won't buy from us right isn't that Mm -hmm. kind of what's going on lately it's look i think in a sense the you know in in it progressive sort of views is that we very much value multiculturalism and diversity and think that that is completely um, commensurate with a with a a stable and unified political structure Mm -hmm. um but i it's interesting that that's you know in many ways an aberration from what Mm. is you know normal in (laughs) scare quotes um historically and cross-culturally so yeah um mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I agree with you about the monoculture thing um for um china and japan um yeah and speaking on the authoritarian side too i think you know there was an interesting piece a little while ago about like how china you know obviously heavily censors their internet and there was this expectation that like that couldn't last right that like somehow yeah. there would be a, you know a pushback against that and there would have to be reforms and like you continue to see a progressive opening of china because of that and it like some people have been like experts have said this just hasn't happened like yeah. they're just continuing to do it and it seems like it's working maybe and so yeah. i think there's a lot of sort of new ground on like functioning authoritarianism in this kind of way. I, I read a, a lot of think pieces. I want to say like a year ago, or maybe it was pre like just before COVID, this was a big topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's when it was. There was a, seemed mm-hmm. to be a lot of think pieces about like, well, we're starting to realize like ever the theory, the going theory seemed to be based on my reading was like, oh, they can't continue that forever. Like it's got to open mm-hmm. up. There's no way, you know, they'll, they'll run, there'll be a revolution. They'll run into problems, whatever it might be. And then like that, that period when, when all these think pieces were, were coming out seemed to be that experts were starting to think that, oh, no, this actually maybe this could go on indefinitely. Like maybe this is another stable form of government, you know, stable in, in quotes, but like they can mm-hmm. continue it like they can be a repressive mm-hmm. regime and still um, capture the market success like, you know, that that mm-hmm. actually we thought would be the thing that would hold them back. I think people had this view. Maybe it's kind of a, a bit to an American view that's based in what, our story or whatever that like, oh, no, you're not going to be able to be the kind of dominant market without this freedom that we think we have here. And then mm. it's like, no, actually, they can't. They're, the market's taking off. Um, it has been ever since they sort of um, uh, loosened control over the over trying to control the markets in, in, in that yep. classical like communist sense. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be stable, like they're able to do it. It's yeah. scary actually it's actually very terrifying I, 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 actually that's a really interesting connection to the books as well because the the kind of future that the author imagines isn't a western centric future of yeah. course yeah and it's not it doesn't assume what probably all other science fiction assumes that the kind of stuff that we see is progress and so on is mm-hmm. going to be is going to be what's going to happen and you know mm-hmm. and that's one of the ways in which the book is kind of alienating to to a westerner to read yeah. and and i agree with you that the um disturbing thing for um you know western progressives in a country like china is that they have shown that industrial and technological development is completely compatible with a and and you know and, and you know power in in the yeah. broader mm-hmm. sense is is completely 
compatible with repression and totalitarianism. And indeed, so, we'll enable it further, like the technologies involved and that kind of thing will enable further repression and like a surveillance state, like the likes of which, you know, who knows how advanced it could get. Um, I think it's worth noting, you know, there are like breaks between the modern and the Maoist, but there's also this connection here in terms of the, the way that academics are treated during the revolution versus now, like there is the violent, there's the same idea in both cases where academics produce instability in a sense, right? Or produce like the wrong kind of instability. And I think in the case of the, the revolution, right, they, or, I mean, you could argue that they are saying that they produce a kind of false stability, right? Because they reproduce the current status of things um but but like either way isn't that there is weird this, yeah like, there's like yeah. like both in capitalism and in communism people hate academics <laughs> they're just like yeah everybody hates academics. philosophers yeah. right <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't think well, it would be with, with how anti-intellectual the right is in this country you'd be like okay a communist country would be like okay they love the intellectuals and hate everybody else it's like no well, they also somehow do you look, it's even broader than politics because um, intellectuals and free thought is incompatible mm -hmm. with religious dogmas as well. Right and, right. and and in fact, any kind of, you know, any kind of system that involves purity of thought and, you know, mm. unified um, universal agreement with, with the one correct way, whether it's the Catholic Church mm -hmm. or the Communist Party, is going to run into that problem. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's something to the inter interesting to the idea that the protagonist of this story chooses an action that goes very much against the group in a kind of way and like does it out of rejection of the quality of the group, seeing the group as um, profoundly evil. Um, and, and like, um, you know, I think we could say that a major talking point amongst the right in America is like what you don't want is an academic world that is run like the one that is described during the revolution here, right, where like academics have to tailor their you know, astrologic or uh, uh, astronomical predictions, right, to what it means for Marxist materialism or something like that, right? Yeah. It always has to be about critical theory or something like that, right? It's very tied to our current culture war discussions in that um, in that way. And so it does seem like the story is kind of also being critical of the way that communism really does, or, or these kind of ideological purities really does limit um, scientific advancement in ways that could be really harmful. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's recognized by the author and probably represents, I'm guessing here, but I think it represents mm -hmm. sort of mainstream opinion in China, which has kind of abandoned that kind of ideological purity. Like they, 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 they look back at say, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution as serious missteps in, mm -hmm. um, you know, a very pragmatic plan to, to strengthen and solidify and stabilize and progress China. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so I think in that sense, it's yeah, I, his view is probably, or the, I'm not sure if it's his view even. I'm, so, I'm sorry, so yeah. many caveats. But it, it's, it all seems to fit, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, 
before we run out of time, if I can shift gears a little bit, I wanted to talk a little bit about the connections here between this and the environmentalism stuff throughout this book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had we talked about the Silent Spring stuff, and there's a small, you know, like mini side narrative that happens in the second half that I just want to include here because it probably won't be important for us next time, which is at one point Yi comes across this environmentalist this like rich kid environmentalist who's like desperately trying to save a particular not particular like not super important kind of bird essentially right like not interesting or special in any kind of way but he like it's endangered and it's being driven to extinction by the logging by the communists and like so he's trying to stop all of that and it's this weird sort of very depressing tale where he just is not succeeding at doing so, I think, right? Like he he does his best to keep them at bay with his massive fortune, but um, it's kind of a losing uh, proposition. And, you know, you get the sense that the mistreatment of the environment is as much a motivation for Yi's heel turn, as it were, as having, you know, to watch her father be beaten to death. Um mm. And like what I think about there is, you know, when like socialists or communists or folks, when we talk about, you know, trying to bring together the oppressed in a sense to rise up against oppressors in a way that will actually redistribute equity and fairness and such. um, It's important to remember that the environment is also a marginalized entity in the sense that like it is in many ways one of the most marginalized entities that it is has the least amount of uh, defenses and um, will probably be exploited to the bitter end. Um, and that, um, you know, the well-being of human beings may come into conflict with the well-being of the environment in this kind of way, um, where the culture revolution could come at the cost of the environment, right? And that would ultimately potentially undermine the effectiveness of that cultural revolution. Yeah, I think one of the things we didn't emphasize in the exposition was that Yi develops a very nihilistic and like um, pessimistic um, view, um, you know, and you know, influenced by the traumatic experiences in her life, and also, as you say, influenced by the way in which um, the 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 system, the people um, are. Are destroying the environment and so it comes to see humanity as irretrievably corrupt and unsalvageable um so yeah it is it's kind of a depressing <laughs> worldview um but um and it's just one of the many aspects of the book which yeah is interesting and absorbing but disturbing and confusing at the same time mm-hmm. it's generally a depressing book with not a very clear moral it's sort yeah. of like um, it's like the series well, jumps straight trilogy, to Empire. So, I mean, we can we could see what happens in the other two books. I think it might bring a little clarity to what to what's going well, on for sure. Though, from what I've read of the two books, it doesn't necessarily bring that much clarity. Oh, really? um, but yeah, right. no, it just gets weirder. I think as the series goes along. Um, but what I was going to say is that like it feels like this series jumps straight to Empire Strikes Back. Right? There's no yeah. a new hope in this series where we establish the characters in a positive light before we have it's like it's dark from the beginning. Like the first opening sequence is especially um, jarring. I think we didn't describe it. But it's like it's a conflict between the guards, like the different communist factions in China and like this, you know, idealistic kid gets shot off a roof, essentially. Um, And I think, you know, it drives home sort of the human cost because we talked before on the show about violent revolution and and, you know, this is in a a sense 
a book about a very violent choice as a solution to humanity as a problem. Um, and I think, you know, what you a lot of what you get from the book is also there comes these huge costs, various lives are going to have to be destroyed if you really are going to choose that particular attempt to solve the problem. Yeah. Well, we're basically out of time on the main show. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to get to? No, I think that was good. I, I feel like that was a nice little warm up. I, it was good that we leaned on the um, uh, exposition zone here to get us uh, started. And I feel like next time we'll get into the really good stuff, which is the like problem of induction and scientific anti-realism kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we barely yeah. dipped our toes in, but uh, mm -hmm. but we're already out of time. It's amazing. Um, yeah, we better... <laughs> sorry for sorry for expo expositioning too oh, much. No, maybe. no, no. <laughs> we uh, we better do what we do every episode. Uh, preview for next week. I guess you already know we're doing part two of this, and uh, I think you've already de described a little bit of the philosophy there. We'll get more into the, I guess not necessarily more into the game, but more into the like the aliens mm -hmm. and the alien technology and how they mess with the humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and and definitely that. some more of like what's going on in the game. Cause there's some really yeah. cool symbolism going on there. Yeah. There's some sweet flips and stuff that happen in the game up, up, yeah. down, maybe even down. some satire or yeah. something. <laughs> and, and, and for anyone who's reading the book at home, um, I advise them to stick with it because it gets weirder yeah. and the ideas come thicker and faster um, in, the, <laughs> in the following books. So um, it's, it's worth the struggle. Yeah, nothing I, I, nothing I said was like a criticism of why it was bad. It's just very disjointed in a way, and I don't know what to make of it. But every part of it was interesting to me, and I, I liked reading it. So I would also I talk about that. Some of I recommend those, some of that, yeah. getting through the book. I think it's worth talking about After Dark a little bit, some the kind of struggles with the narrative format and things. So. Yeah. Oh, but what do our top patrons want you to say this week on Patreon.com slash Zero G? As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Yeah, thanks to our strong alien AI patrons. Gabby, Big Easy Blasphemy, Operation BrownyePockets.com is a free game you play in real life. MR, PSA for sober people who like beer, check out uh, Athletic Brewing Company and Wellbeing Brewing Company. Dude, Corey Ebert, Sinisipa Unnom, We Need More Camus, and other Fossil Vega driving philosophers, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. Oh, sorry, the Freedom Menu was only till 11 a.m. And the official Cult Compound Planning Committee, North Carolina Division, who I hear is having quite a time at the beach this weekend. Yeah. Um, what the? Okay, more on that after dark. <laughs> <laughs> and all the thanks to our definitely, absolutely not clones in any way patrons. Thomas raging against blowers gets my palps pulsing. And we all know Aaron has a spider tulpa. It's true. Thank we you all very much. <laughs> oh, and sorry. Thanks, Matt. Uh, shall, sorry, Matt. Definitely toss out a plug in the end, <laughs> and this this ending of the recording. I always forget and then ask somebody after dark, and that doesn't really work as well. Uh, so I, please. I totally forgot to. Thank you. Yeah. Um, ev everybody, listen to Decoding the Gurus. It's the second best podcast in the podcast world. Um, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> after the, the first best is That's Joe Rogan. Point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> number one joe rogan number two <laughs> i agree <laughs> totally agree <laughs> all right well that said join all three of us after dark here on patreon.com slash zero g lots to talk about i have some personal grudges to air uh <laughs> and uh, we'll see you if not we'll see you for part two next time this 
has been a burst transmission of Philosophers in Space. All music written and performed by Thomas Smith. If you've enjoyed your infotainment upload, please locate the nearest podcast interface device and fill it with five-star ratings and glowing reviews. If you think Ground Control should spring for fun new goodies and content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash zero G. You can find us on Twitter at Zero G Philosophy, where Aaron will instantly and compulsively respond. Or you can email us at philosophersinspace at gmail.com. Finally, if you're sad that it takes so long for our signals to reach Earth, you can always find Thomas over at Serious Inquiries Only and Opening Arguments, and Aaron over at Embrace the Void. Until next time, live long and philosopher. <laughs>